Well, thank you for having me. Um, once again, my name is John, and uh, I think we have a picture of my family. I just want to introduce my family. So this is actually missing our eight-week-old, who um, we came back to Texas to have him be born a Texan. Um, so, yeehaw. Um, and so, yeah, this is my wife, Allie, my son, Ezra, my daughter, Sarah Grace, and then Elliot is one who's not on there. Um, but if you're interested in just kind of keeping up with us. Uh, those are our Instagram handles. We really try to leverage Instagram to keep people up to speed on what's our life like in Budapest, what is God doing amongst Central Europeans, how is he affecting Europe uh, in this what's called post-Christian environment. God is moving, man. And so we try, to, we try to put some stories on there. And then that's my email address. You can email me if you want to stay in touch with us as well. So that's a little bit about us. Please pray for us. We are about eight or nine days away from going back to Budapest, so we're going to step on that plane, and uh, it's always hard to say see you later to family, and especially when you have kids, and so please pray for us, and uh, if you're interested in talking to us or the other church planters who are here, uh, we're going to be out in the foyer, that's a fancy word, uh, foyer, uh, after the service, and so we'd love to chat with you some more. Um, This Antioch Dallas is a place where we encounter Jesus, and I'm really, really glad that you could be here. This is your first time here. Welcome. This is a place where we really want to go after Jesus. We want to go after the more of what God has for us, and so uh, I'm glad that you're here. We're here to encounter Jesus and to be transformed and to go out and impact Dallas, Brussels, uh, the Middle East, the nations of the earth, right, Budapest, Hungary, and so that's what we're about here, encountering Jesus, and so my prayer is that you would do that today. Um, We've been going through a series, Zach and the other pastors here have been going through a series called Right Side Up, which is walking through the gospel of Luke, and uh, the kingdom of God is a theme that is throughout the gospels, but especially in the gospel of Luke, and today we're going to look at Luke 14, so we're going to continue on in that series and looking at the ways in which the kingdom of God uh, turns things upside down, but at the same time makes things right. So it turns the world upside down, the poor are blessed, the meek inherit the earth, this kind of thing. But paradoxically, it also makes things right. There's justice that happens. And so that's what we've been going through. I'm going to continue in that theme today. So we'll be in Luke 14. If you have a Bible, um, great. You can go to Luke 14, verses 7 through 11. If you don't, go to page one, uh, 848 in the Bibles underneath the chair in front of you. Okay? Um, but I thought today we would just keep it simple. It's my first time uh, teaching here. And so I just, you know, we'll keep it simple. Simple questions, simple answers. You ready? All right, so what does it mean to be human? Is that good? We'll just start there. Yeah, really, you can just tune me out the rest of the time. You probably already know the answer if you want to, like, you know, check something on your phone or whatever. Just kidding. Um, what does it mean to be human? How do we value ourselves according to those definitions of what it means to be human? Um, what are the definitions? And then, what does the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus tell us about what it means to be truly human and where we find our value? Okay, so that's what we're going to jump into today. And I want to start with a question. Who in here has ever wondered, am I enough? Am I valuable? Yeah, we even got people raising their hands. Yeah. Am I enough? Am I valuable? Right, there's so many definitions out there about what it means to be fully human, to be fully alive, the good life, right? Um, but what definition do you live by? What definition do your coworkers live by? Does your family live by? And does it make you feel valuable? I know that there are some moms here. There's got to be some moms here who you can remember um, if you have a kid, 
maybe it was three o'clock in the morning and you're, you're just starting to learn how to breastfeed and the baby won't feed and you have lost more sleep than like the Navy SEALs at Bud's and you're about to lose your mind and you're gonna explode and you're wondering, gosh, can I do this? Can I be a good enough mom? Do I have what it takes, right? Or let's say, let's say you're a mom you know, you have a career and you're working hard to provide for your family. You're wondering, gosh, am I balancing everything right? Am I doing enough? Am I working hard at work to take care of my family? Am I also being present at home? Ah, am I enough? Am I valuable? Uh, maybe you're a dad and you're working hard as well and, and, and you're wondering, gosh, am I, am I providing enough for my family? Am I being present enough with my kids? Am I giving enough at my work? Am I enough? Or maybe you're a student, right, and you're wondering, Okay, where am I going to move to when my parents get my grades? Um, am, I, am I enough? Is this going to work? Am I going to pass? Am I going to get out of here? Or am I going to fail? Let's say you're at SMU or you're in high school. Maybe you're wondering, am I enough? There's a lot of pressure. And there are a lot of definitions out there. There's a lot of voices that are vying for our attention, that are telling us, this is what it means to have the good life. This is what it means to be human. And this is what it means to be enough. This is what it means to be valuable. So how do you know which one to listen to? Where do you go? Um, with all that, there can be this sense of shame. Um, Brene Brown is a uh, research scientist at U of H, University of Houston, so she's a Texan. And uh, she's written a lot on shame. She's written a book called Daring Greatly. It's, it's specifically about overcoming shame. Um, but she has a quote on shame that we're, gonna, that we're gonna put up here that I wanna discuss, and it relates to not meeting these definitions. I define shame, she says, as the intensely painful feeling or, or experience of believing that we are flawed and therefore unworthy of love and belonging. Something we've experienced, done, or failed to do makes us unworthy of connection, right? Shame is not I made a mistake, but I am a mistake, right? It's not I messed up, it's I am a mess up. That's my identity, this is just who I am. Maybe you heard that from your parents. Maybe you even have a crazy CFO at your office who just berates you and you believe that kind of soundtrack that's running through your head. I am a mistake. I should feel ashamed. It's not enough. I can't make it, right? This is what leads to shame. And what we see and what we will see is that that's, this is not the gospel. This is not where Jesus takes us. In fact, what I want you to hear today is this. Father God has invited all of us to join him for a place at his table. And in that place, we find safety or security, connection, and rest. Safety, connection, and rest. There's not a moving target of not knowing where you stand with the Father, right? Am I his son? Am I his daughter? Am I not? What's good? What's bad? How do I do it? No, with the Father, he reveals himself to the person of Jesus, and we know exactly what we get. Now, there's mystery in, in following Jesus, but there's security, there's safety, there's rest, and that's where I'm going to take you this morning, that there is no shame in following Jesus. There is no shame in resting in your place as a human being at the table of the Lord. Does that make sense? You with me? So that's where we're going to go. That's the lead. But here's the rub. We all have these definitions. How do we measure up to them, right? What do we do, right? Whether you're, you know, a mom, a dad, a student, whatever. For me, the thing that was really challenging was to find significance and to find value. Uh, when I was a kid, 
Uh, I had much redder hair than I do now, and I wore glasses that were awful. <laughs> um, and I refused to let my parents or my sister uh, dress me in the morning, despite their best efforts. And so, like, I would go to school with mismatched socks and, you know, red hair, glasses. I mean, I was just a target, right? And so, anyway, so the way I overcame that now is I don't wear socks. So, yeah, in your face, bullies, right? <laughs> Right? No, I'm just kidding. Um, so, no, this, it, I was an easy target, right? And so that produced in me, uh, along with my parents' divorce, produced in me a lot of insecurity about who I am and where do I stand, right? So I thought, okay, I'm going to try on some different identities, some different definitions of what it means to be fully, like, real and fully human. I'm going to see how it fits. So for a while, I was the, the sports guy, right? I did all the sports and I tried everything. Um, I just was trying to be like the best, and then I realized, gosh, even though I'm saying I'm playing football, I'm not really playing football. Just because you get in in the last minute of the game doesn't mean that you're actually playing, right? And so that didn't work out. Uh, and so I thought, okay, I'll be the smart kid, right? I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to memorize some really long words, these polysyllabic profundities, and I'm going to throw them out at lunch and see how it goes. And people actually ended up not liking me more because of that, and I don't blame them. Um, okay, so that didn't work out so well. So I was like, all right, forget it all. I'm just going to be an outcast. I'm going to be a skater, surfer dude, right? And, like, and I lived near Galveston, so I could pull that off a little bit. Uh, so I got my lip pierced. I dyed my hair blonde. I started listening to a bunch of punk rock and like heavy metal. And it just was sad. <laughs> I just started feeling sad. I didn't really enjoy. I was exhausted. I was trying all these things on. So I was like, okay, okay, well, what if I... Okay, what if I honor my family? Okay, that's what I'll do. So my family has this rich military history. So, you know, what if I became like the best of the best? What if I was like to become a Navy SEAL? So I started looking into it. I was like, okay, this ain't gonna work. This, this, this is not who I am. Like I can't, I can't do this. And so I was exhausted. And even as a Christian, I would find ways to try to either compare myself with others or put on an identity that said, I'm more valuable than you, or this is where I find my value. So for me, because I'm an academic, it was theology, right? I know more than you about the Bible, Greek, Hebrew, blah, 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 blah. And I became the really annoying seminarian who no one likes to be around, right? And that didn't work out as well. So where did I go? What did I do? Um, the good news is, is that throughout all of that, Jesus was continually wooing me back to himself and taking me by the hand and saying, like it says in Psalm 23, come and rest with me by these streams of still water. Come lay with me, rest, and find your identity, find your worth, your value there from a place of rest. And I will tell you who you are and you will find rest for your soul. Does that make sense? So that's where I went and that's where I'm going to show you that we're going to go today. And I hope that it brings some freedom to you. Um, it's not an uncommon story. Um, my students in Budapest, I teach at two schools. I teach in an international high school and also help teach at a university in Budapest. And at the university level, we have this class that all the students in the university have to take. Now, it's a, it's a Christian university like Baylor, but not everyone there has to be a Christian to take courses there. Um, we have a psychology department, law department, et cetera, et cetera. Um, but this one class is Foundations of Christian Faith, and everyone has to take Foundations of Christian Faith. And one of the things that we try to get them to do is to analyze and to reflect on what does their culture say about what it means to be human, about what it means to be a man or a woman. Uh, what did the Soviet Union, because we live in Budapest, Hungary, a former Soviet country, what did the Soviet Union say about what it means to be a human being and where does the value come from? 
And far and away, this is probably my favorite time of the school semester, listening to these students answer these questions. Because on one hand, it's incredibly heartbreaking, but on the other hand, it's so insightful. And I can see myself in their answers, and I'm sure you can see yourself too. Uh, so to give you an example, uh, the women in our classes, uh, this one woman in particular said, sometimes I feel like my culture makes me feel schizophrenic. Like I'm supposed to be this like incredibly hot object of desire, but I'm also supposed to be like the tame, quiet housewife who just stays at home and just does my husband's bidding. Like I don't know what I'm supposed to become, right? Or the men in our class sometimes will say, I just feel like I'm a, I'm a machine. Like I get up, you know, super early. I go to work from eight to six. I come home, I'm exhausted. I'm supposed to give stuff to my kids. And then I'm supposed to wake up and do it all over again, right? <laughs> Wash, rinse, repeat, right? Um, and then the history, when you start talking about what did the Soviet Union do to humanness in Hungary, this is where it's truly heartbreaking because the Soviet Union was really, really good at stamping out dissenters, right? And so they bugged your pipes in your house. They bugged all kinds of things in your home. And so you never knew when the black car was going to roll up in front of your house and take you away and you're gone. Families would inform on each other, right, to get uh, money, to get uh, prowess in the community. If you didn't like somebody, you could lie about them and just tell the government that that person is, is a capitalist and is trying to work against, you know, our comrades. And then that person, the black car, shows up and they're gone, right? So this is the context in which I'm in. So there's a lot of distrust. There's a lot of brokenness. And one of the things that they said that the Soviet Union said about what it means to be human is that you're all alone. Nobody cares for you. Right? The government is your father, but he's a dictator. So God is a dictator to them in a lot of ways. And you're all alone. No one cares for you. You're an orphan. Right? And so it's just this heaviness. And so one of the things that I've seen is that these things that my students kind of wear as what it means to be human and where I get my value can be broken down into three categories. Um, and we'll show those here. So one, what can I produce? Right? What's my net worth? What are my financial earnings, my accomplishments, my awards, right? Now, you can probably relate to this, right? This is, this is what it means to be fully human. So there are some circles who say this is what it means, right? Other circles will say, well, it's how you look, right? Are you crossfitting enough? <laughs> are you, are you uh, gaining enough weight? I used to, when I was, man, when I was in high school, I was like drinking creatine and Celtec and all this garbage that probably wrecked havoc on my kidneys and liver and stuff, right? Because I thought, man, I've got to gain weight. And guess what? I can't gain weight. It just doesn't happen, right? It's kind of a problem for me. Um, and so it, it's how you look or maybe it's the right hair or not having enough weight or having too much weight. It's a moving target, right? Or it's who is in your circle, right? Uh, do you run with these successful people, right, who have an incredible net worth and who, who you feel successful when you're around them? Or do you say, you know what? I don't need the successful people. I'm with the outcast, man. I'm running with them. You know what? We don't care. We hang out in Deep Bellum and drink coffee all day and have lots of tattoos, right? So, hey, man, I used to live in that world, so don't I'm just saying. I know it. All right? So it can be like renegade outcast or successful. It can be strong. It can be weak. So I think that when it comes to our common definitions for humanness, we run to these three categories, right? And I think these three categories can often lead us astray. And the reason why I think they lead us astray is on one hand, they speak to something good, and that is desire. Desire. Right? That deep thing in you that says, I want to be significant. I want to know that I am loved. I want to know that I have security, that I have value, that I am seen. 
And there's nothing wrong with that. In fact, that's really human to feel desire for these things. The problem is, if we walk by this pathway, our desires are trying to be met and satisfied in all kinds of things that will never quit, that will never deeply satisfy, right? And so it's a rat race. It's a hamster wheel. And that's where we don't want to go. And so depending on your Enneagram type, you might have kind of these different desires, or I don't know if you're into Myers-Briggs or Strength Finders or whatever it is. You might have these different desires, right? You have a desire for justice or for significance or value or whatever it is, and you're looking for these to be met. And the question when you look at these three things is this. What's the one commonality that you can see in these things? What's the one commonality? It's about what I can do, what I can control with my two hands. I can produce. I can make myself look good. I can define who is in my circle, and that will define me. So I'm in control. I'm the master of my own destiny. I'm my own little G, God, right? I'm going to take care of it. This is how I lived for a very long time. Even as a Christian, I had to really come out from under that. And so that core belief of needing to take matters into my own hands and define my own value, where does it lead to? What's the fruit right? Let's be real, okay? What's the fruit of this? Well, it's a lack of rest, right? It's, it's a striving to feel significant, but at, deep down it's this insecurity, this uncertainty about my identity, and ultimately a deep depression about, gosh, am I really valuable? Will it ever be enough? And like I said, even as a Christian, I struggle with this, but the Lord has slowly been turning on the lights in each room in my house, so to speak, and showing me, hey, John, when you run to this thing over here, you're trying to meet this desire, And so I'm spending time and saying, okay, Lord, I feel this right now. What's the deeper desire? Or when you go to try to hang with these people because you want to look like you're being, you know, successful, you want to be seen, and you don't want to be with these people, right? What's that deep desire that's being met or that you're trying to meet? And so the Lord has been showing me slowly that he is capable of meeting my basic human desires, that he is capable of showing me that I am seen, I am loved, and that I'm valuable, and that comes from a place of rest. Does that make sense? Are you tracking with me? Okay. So the key questions for us today are this, and then we'll go into the passage. Are we willing to let our creator define our humanness? Or will we allow something like our culture or our friends or something else that we can control define it? Will we allow our father to define our value in the family? Or will we live life on our own, frantically searching for significance? Okay, what are we going to do? So let's jump into the passage and see what Jesus has to say about it, shall we? So the context of Luke 14 is this. Um, There are many parallels to Luke 14 and what Zach has already taught on previously, particularly when it comes to the, the master of the house or the host of the party. If you remember a few weeks ago, Zach talked about how God is a good master. He takes care of his people, right? But you see also Jesus is always talking about parties in the gospel, dinner parties, banquets, weddings, feasts, these kind of things. The master is portrayed as God the Father, and he's a good master. And so you're going to see that here today as well. And some other context is that when Luke 14 begins, it's the Sabbath, all right? Now, Sabbath, or Shabbat, is the Jewish day of rest, right? It's really, really important to Jews, especially first century Second Temple Jews, and here's why. For Israel, they had been sent into exile two times, and it was painful, right? The first time, they lost tribes, and the second time, they were in captivity in Babylon, all right? And it was really, really painful. 
And so when you come back around to the first century, you've had a lot of fighting to, to reestablish Jerusalem, reestablish Israel, and then all of a sudden, it's like, okay, we're not going to let this happen again. So the Pharisees were the leaders of the Jews who said, we are going to create a law code that will prevent us from ever even getting close to breaking the law, or what's called Torah, okay? So we're going to create these fences all around that will help us prevent from ever even getting close to touching us. And the mistake that they made in this is that they thought, and this is, you know, obviously my perspective is hindsight, and my opinion is that they thought that it was about breaking Torah when really God was disciplining his people because they had broken relationship. They had run after false gods, right? He says in Isaiah, the beginning of Isaiah, I hate all your shows and all your pretense. You come to church, you shine up your shoes, you sing these songs, but it's empty. There's no, there's no life in it. Come to me, right? Be my bride. So this is the kind of heart. God is saying, I want relationship. You broke relationship. That's why there was discipline, right? But the Pharisees said, well, we went and we broke Torah, so that's probably why we were disciplined, and that's why we're never going to break it again. And then along comes Jesus, and he says, hey, what if I healed somebody on the Sabbath? And they go, whoa, that's not allowed. You're about to get us into hot water. And he starts to challenge, what are you about? Are you about keeping Torah because you think it's about keeping the rules and this kind of cultural game that you're playing? Or are you about relationship? Do you view God as a harsh master who's keeping the rules on this kind of this checkbox? Or do you view him as father and the host of the party who draws you close for a place at the table? Does that make sense? So that's some of the, the Jewish context. And I think that gives us a sense of empathy towards the Pharisees. Sometimes the Pharisees are, are pitched as the, you know, the, the, the stupid religious people of the day. And indeed, they have some uh, duh moments, right, in the Gospels. But there's also a deep fear here. But Jesus is going to go through that fear, and he's going to say, let's get to the heart of what's really going on. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what's happening. And so then... What happens is Jesus comes in and he tells a story. So he's just healed somebody on the Sabbath and he's challenging their reasons for keeping Sabbath. He's getting to the heart of who they think God is and he tells a story. Verse 7. Now he told a parable to those who were invited when he noticed how they chose the places of honor, saying to them, when you are invited by someone to a wedding feast, do not sit down in a place of honor lest someone more distinguished than you be invited by him. And, and he who invited you will both will come and say to you, give your place to this person, and then you will, begin to, you will begin with shame to take the lowest place. But when you are invited, go and sit in the lowest place, so that when your host comes, he may say to you, friend, move up higher. Then you will be honored in the presence of all who sit at, table, at the table with you. For everyone who exalts himself will be humbled, and he who humbles himself will be exalted." So, what's happening here? Well, Jesus is telling a story about a meal. Now, I want to tell you a little bit about um, mealtime in the first century, okay? So, we have a picture. If you're interested in reading about this, you can read Plato's Symposium. Uh, and this is a bit of Greco-Roman art up here in the top picture. And you see they're reclining, right? They're reclining and they're dining. And for you lefties, I'm sorry, they're, right, they're reclining on their left elbow and they're eating with their right hand. So, pff, I don't know what to do. With, if you're a lefty. Sorry. In the ancient world, you need, a, you need a, to learn how to be ambidextrous, I guess. Okay, and the bottom picture 
I love this picture because it shows the U-shaped table. So there's, it's not this long medieval like castle table where you're like speaking with a megaphone to talk to the person at the end, right? It's something that's a little more intimate. And I love this picture because you have the little boy down at the bottom who's speaking and his father's shushing him. <laughs> I feel like that would be me. But um, it, it shows that there's order, there's hierarchy at the table. And the highest place, the place of honor is right next to the master, okay? So this is a little bit of a picture for you to understand. So Jesus is transitioning into this story, and when he talks about honor, he's speaking to the very heart of their culture because the first century Mediterranean world was an honor-shame culture. Okay, so if any of you have traveled to the Middle East or if you've been East anywhere, you know that honor-shame cultures are very different from American cultures, right? In an honor-shame culture, um, you have appearing acceptable and honorable to your community is everything. You want to honor your family. You want to honor your community. And it's like group peer pressure, right? Now, it's not like a junior high locker room where people are snapping each other with towels. Like, it's a little different than that, right? People smell maybe a little better than the junior high boys. Um, but it is similar in the sense that they rely on the community to bring you in line, right? So the way you do that is you uphold community norms. For example, Torah. Sabbath keeping, right? This is how you uphold the community. This is how you keep things together. And if you're unable to do this or refuse to fall in line with the community, boom, your honor rating, so to speak, takes a hit, right? You go down to 2% on Rotten Tomatoes and you're out the door, right? So you have to upkeep, you have to keep up that honor rating, right? You got to keep it high, okay? Now Jesus is speaking to the fear that they have of being dishonored and how they react out of such fear, jockeying for position, looking to be the honorable one at the table. And he's saying there's a different way in the kingdom, a different way to receive honor. And it's not with your own two hands. It's not by controlling and jockeying for position. Does that make sense? Okay, so this is the honor-shame box in which we are working. Does that make sense? Okay, you're with me. Good. All right, so the way that he does this, this vintage Jesus, it's great, all right? Now, you'll, you'll recall Luke 15, the story of the prodigal son is really the story of two brothers, right? And you can see yourself in both brothers, right? Well, here, Jesus tells a story of two dinner guests, all right? So let's go to the next slide here, all right? So I have a little, I don't know if any of you like old school rap, but this is a, who said this? Who's, who, what was the name of the group? It's the Whoop There It Is song. Anyways, party people, anyone? Yeah, <laughs> there you go. So... <laughs> Yeah. All right, so that's, that's where I got that from. So guess number one, the first party person, right? What you see is that he defines his own worth and his own value. How? How does he do that? He does it by jumping to the front of the line, by pushing his way to the seat of honor, uh, which in Greek is called protoklesia, uh, which just means like first dining one. It's the place right next to the master, okay? Now the master is the one who's supposed to be calling him up, but what does he do? He says, no, 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 I'm gonna call myself up. So not only is he kind of putting down the people around him, taking his destiny into his own hands, but he's also kind of taking the role of the master, right? And the master, you got to think, is going, well, no, you didn't. I'm about to put you in your place, all right? So then he seeks to be honored by others by comparing himself with others, right? He's exalting himself above the others because he wants honor, right? Now, you can probably relate to this. I know I struggle with this. I'm painfully human, right? Just to give you an example, um, I take the public tra transportation system everywhere in Budapest, metro, buses, I love it. 
Um, and in Texas, it's a little different, right? If I go walking to the store here in Texas, people look at me like I'm strange, right? But uh, the other day, I was driving, and it was really hot, and I drove by this bus stop, and uh, this guy was waiting at the bus stop, and he had a bunch of bags, and I thought, poor guy, he's got to wait at the bus stop, and I got the car. And I thought, oh my gosh, what is wrong with me? How quickly I'm starting to compare myself when I'm the guy at the bus stop in like nine days, right? And so... Anyways, so that's kind of where that happens. But another really funny place where you see this happen is hip-hop. Now, I don't know if you like rap, but I love rap. And rap is hysterical. They're, they're the best. Rappers are the best about this, right? Because they're always like, I'm the greatest. No one's like me. And probably the, the best case study for this is our good friend Jay-Z, right? Does anyone know who Jay, what Jay-Z's nickname is? Hova, right? You know what that stands for? It's a derivative of J-Hova, or Jehovah, which is a transliteration from the Hebrew, Yahweh, or Yahweh, depending on how you pronounce it, Yahweh. So Jay-Z's saying, I'm God, right? And then Kanye comes along, is like, all right, I'm the new Jesus, right? All right? And then it's like, it's never ending, right? So who's going to come along next, and what are they going to say, right? It's a never-ending cycle of people coming along in hip-hop and saying, I'm better than this rapper, I'm better than that rapper. And where does it end, right? I know it's funny, we can joke about it, right? But we all do it. Right? And now I'm not walking around calling myself God, but sometimes I do act that way. And the way that I control and the way that I try to push my value above others, right, and define who I am more so than the Father does. So that's what this guy is doing. And so what happens is he's replaced by someone higher, more honorable. So he's humbled, right? So if you like Kendrick Lamar, be humble, right? So anyway, so he's saying, be humble. I don't know if you got that. Anyways, so <laughs> I edited it for language. Um, so yeah, he's saying, this guy got humbled because there's always going to be someone out there who can be more honorable in some way or another. So what's the point? So that's when Jesus switches to the second guy. So the second person, guest number two. Guest number two has his worth and value defined by whom? the host. He takes the lowest place. Now how? How could he do that? Why would he do that? Why would you ever want to do that? Well, I believe what Jesus is saying here is that he's saying that this person is looking at this dinner party from a place of security. He's taking his place at the father or the master's table in a place of security. He's secure. He knows that the master sees him. He doesn't need to jockey for position. So he has a place of security. And so he allows his worth or his value to be defined by the host because the host is the one who invites him up, right? And what does the host call him? Friend, thank you. You are alive. Thank you. Yes, friend. Yeah, he calls him friend. You can hear the heart of God. You can hear Jesus in this. I no longer call you servants or slaves, but I call you friend, right? So he calls him friend. And so this guy rests in the lower place. He accepts his place, but he's called up to a higher place, and he's called friend. And he's honored and glorified by all. Here's my point, all right? There are two ways to live, right? I used to hate it when people said there's two kind of people in the world, but here I am. All right? There are two ways to live, right? You can strive and push and prove your worth. And ultimately, you create conflict with others. You create conflict within yourself because there's insecurity, and you create conflict with God. Do you see that? You can strive and push and try to prove your worth, and this is what it means to be human, to look my best and be better over everyone, but you create conflict with God, because you're taking his place and saying, I'm going to be the one who defines value. You create conflict with others, because you're saying, I'm better than you, and then you create conflict within yourself. So that, I propose to you, is not the better way. 
The better way to be human, to live fully human, to flourish, is to rest as a human being who is seen by the master, by the creator God, to rest as one who is human and valuable because the master says so. So the master defines you. The master defines you. He is enough. How the father views you is enough. You can rest. Every deep desire for justice, for significance, for value, to be seen, these things, to be known, can be met in the person of Jesus who comes close, who invites you to a place at the table. Okay. This is what I want you to see. The master is the one who gives us a place at the table, who calls us friend. All right? All right, so you may be saying, okay, John, that's beautiful, poetic. Oh, I have butterflies in my stomach. Great. Okay, but how do I do this, right? How does this actually get lived out? How do we do this? And so I want to take you on the pathway that I think will help you. I think, first of all, you have to recognize there are many definitions, right? And we've already done that. Be real about it, right? And assess them. There are many definitions. Is it really sustainable that your definition of what it means to be a true man is just this kind of narrow, sort of macho, bulky definition, and everyone else that doesn't fit in that isn't a true man? Or your definition of what it means to be a true woman is to have the right, like, hair extensions and the right eyelashes and the right everything, right? Like, what is it that you're trying to live by? Just be real about it and ask yourself, is this sustainable? And is this going to give life? Or is it going to create conflict? So that's number one. Recognize the many definitions, right? Just be real about them. Two, acknowledge where you're at. Which guest are you? right? This doesn't have to be, this isn't beat yourself up, right? This is allowing yourself to be human. This is coming before Jesus and saying, Lord, when I'm around these people, I feel the need to act this way, and I don't like it. What deeper desire is not being met by you? Or, Lord, I feel insanely insecure when I'm around other moms. I don't know what to do with that. What deeper desire is not being met? Please meet it. Okay, that's what that is. So it's acknowledging where you're at. And then finally, rest and walk with Jesus. So I'm going to break this down into two parts. First of all, rest. When I say rest, I mean to look at the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus and find rest in what he offers us. First of all, his life. Um, In John 13, we see Jesus in this beautiful picture having all the disciples at a meal, right? And he's reclining. And what does he do? He takes the lowest place. He goes from the place, the master, not even just the place of honor, but the master gets low and he disrobes, takes on the place of a servant and he washes the feet of his disciples. And they can't refuse. He says, unless you let me do this to you, you will have no part of me. Why? Because Jesus wants to come close and touch that most vulnerable place, that dirtiest spot, that place where you feel the most shame and he wants to say, I will make it clean, but you've got to let go. You've got to surrender. And that's why I love this painting because you see the, the, the guffawing and the, the resistance and there's conflict in this picture. What is he doing? Why is he allowing this to happen? But Jesus is portraying what he's going to go and do on the cross as well. And so the washing of this most vulnerable place allows us to rest and be cleaned and most importantly to be transformed by the love of Jesus. What greater love is there than this, to be fully known in all of your warts and all of your problems and all this struggle and all the twisted desires to be known, to be drawn in to say, let's, let's wash it, let's make it clean, let's become fully alive. It's challenging, I know, but I would dare you, I dare you 
to be vulnerable. I dare you to allow Jesus to come close. So that's his life. And in his death, he says all of this conflict, this internal striving, this um, insecurity, the, the conflict that you have with your coworkers and trying to jockey for position or whatever, the conflict that you have with God, it's tearing you apart. And guess what? I'm going to let it tear me apart. I'm going to go up on a Roman cross as an insurrectionist and I'm going to let it rip me apart so that you don't have to. My blood for your blood. A life for life. And in doing that, he deals with what we call sin. This striving, this selfishness, this shadow. When I look in the mirror and I go, you know, I want to be myself, but sometimes I don't like this shadow, this thing called sin. Jesus handles it. He puts an end to all of that conflict by letting it destroy himself. And then his blood, instead of ours, wipes the slate clean. And an act of love like this transforms us. It has transformed my life. It has transformed my marriage. It has transformed my identity. It transforms the way I look at people. It has transformed the world for thousands of years now. It transforms us. That's the death. But that's not even the end of the story. You still have the resurrection. Right? Sometimes we hear the gospel and, and, or we, we share the gospel and say, hey, you know, have you ever told a lie? Well, yes. Jesus died for your sins. Oh, great. Um, then you get to heaven. Oh, okay. Right? But then we leave out the resurrection. Right? The resurrection is so good. All that other stuff is good too, but Jesus and the resurrection. With that, he hits reset on the effects of death. And he shows that we can always be connected with God and his family at the table. That not even death separates us from God, from his presence. Right? Now, he's with us always. And so he heals the wound between God and man, between death and life. He heals that, and he shows that we too can be reborn and reset to live from a place of rest. Because guess what? You can't push your way to the table. You can't strive your way and, and just kind of live out these Christian principles and, oh, okay, well, so from now on, when I go into work tomorrow morning, I'm going to take the back seat in the back of the conference room and that'll show them and they'll see how humble I am. That's not what Jesus is getting at, right? He's saying... Come to me, rest in the place that I have for you, and from that place of rest, be transformed and run hard after your destiny from rest, not from striving. Do you feel me? All right, come on. So the result is something beautiful, and it's what we see in Ephesians 2. Paul writes, um, and he raised us up with him and seated us, do you see this? Seated us with him in the heavenly places, the place of rest, seated us in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. And you picture the Father uh, at the right, the Son is at the right hand of the Father, and we're seated with Jesus. It's beautiful. So that in the coming ages, meaning the time after Jesus' resurrection, he might show the immeasurable riches of his grace and kindness towards us in Christ Jesus. The Father is kind. He's good. He's a good master. For by grace you have been saved through faith. This is not your own doing. It is a gift of God, not as a result of works or striving or pushing or whatever, so that no one may boast, for we are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus for good works, which he prepared beforehand, that we should walk in them. So, what does it mean to walk in them, right? So that's the life, death, and resurrection of Jesus. That's what it means to rest. That's the gospel. What does it mean to walk? How do we live this out? And this is where I'm going to kind of help close us out and help take us there, right? I think, first of all, rest. And You've got to dare to believe that this is true. You've got to take a chance, all right? This is more than just a new philosophy, right? That's not what we're here about here at Antioch. We're about encountering Jesus. Jesus is alive. He is transforming my life. He's transforming um, Stephen and Danae's life. He's transforming Zach's life. He's transforming Joe Paul's life. He's transforming 
Luke and Macy Wilson, if they're in here, I think they were coming. He's transforming lives. He is alive. He is alive. So that's what we're about. So that's the first thing. You've got to trust and dare to believe that it's true and surrender. Secondly, set the truth before you. You know, when I was working as a consultant, there would be times when I would just hit a wall. And I had remembered that, okay, God is always with me, so I'm just going to pray. So I'd take a break, and I would ask the Holy Spirit, Holy Spirit, what are you saying about me right now? What are you saying about yourself? What are you saying about this problem that I'm dealing with? Man, every single time the Holy Spirit would just move and show me either a solution or just comfort me and say, hey, nevertheless, I'm with you. I'm with you. And I'm telling you, problems would get solved. I was working on a, an Excel spreadsheet once, and there's this macros that I was trying to develop, and it was awful, and it wasn't working, and it was breaking. And I was just beside myself. It was like past deadline, and I just stopped. and was like, Lord, I need help. And I was just broken. And all of a sudden, changed something, and boom, the thing started working. I don't know. Maybe it wasn't God, but what if I hadn't asked, right? So take the chance. Dare to, dare to put the truth before you that God is with you. Thirdly, Sabbath. Practice stopping and resting. Not this religious sort of crazy Sabbath keeping where you're trying to you know, control everything, right? But rest and let God provide. Let God take care of you. Ask the Lord, finally, what is the place where you want me to go and where you want me to rest and where I can know that you are enough? Um, and so there's great freedom here. There's great freedom here. And so this, this last slide that I have for you, um, this right side up principle it brings us in alignment with God because we no longer play God. We can rest as humans. It's okay to be human. You're free to be human. Secondly, there's security. There's peace within. The Father defines me. It's not a moving target, right? I know where I stand with the Father. He defines me. I am secure. I can rest as a son, not an orphan. Finally, there's honor and value. There's peace with others. I can serve the least of these. I can serve people in my community. I can pour out because I don't have to be afraid of like, oh, well, what if I don't have enough for myself? That's an orphan mindset, y'all, right? No, we live from generosity because our Father is generous, because we have been given everything, right? Everything, so we can pour out. So this is, this is the freedom that comes from resting in our place of being human, resting in the gospel, and knowing that our value comes from the Father, not from our striving, not from the moving targets that we get thrown at, that get thrown at us, all right? This is where I want you to go. So I just want you to remember that the Father God has invited all of us to join him for a place at his table. And in that place, we find safety, connection, and rest. So now we're going to move into a time of, uh, of prayer. If you've never allowed yourself a prayer in communion, if you've never allowed yourself to, um, to believe that, to dare to believe that God is good, he's for you, that he's invited you for, to a place at the table. I'm just going to take some time to pray. And if you are already a Christ follower, if you're already following Jesus, then maybe this is just a time for you to say, Lord, man, I've been striving for a long time. I just want to rest. I want to rest in who you say that I am. Let me lay down my streams of living water with you. Then let's do that, okay? So let's pray. Um, let's close our eyes. And so uh, I just want to take some time to pray. Father, thank you so much for your love for us through Jesus. Thank you that when we see Jesus, we see the Father. That there isn't an Old Testament God and a New Testament God. There is one, and we see you, Father. We see you in Jesus. Lord, I am tired, and I come to you wanting to rest. I believe that your life, your death, and your resurrection was enough, that it is finished, that you have the last word, and that I can rest. So I dare to believe it today. I dare to rest 
Bring me into your rest and propel me into my destiny. Propel me into living fully alive from a place of rest. I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, we're now going to move into a time of communion, and I think it's fitting that we looked at the Last Supper. Um, this is a time for us to, to, to see that Jesus allowed himself to be torn apart, the bread of life broken for us so that we could be healed, so we didn't have to be uh, destroyed by sin, and that his blood is the, the new promise, the new covenant, that he is with us, he is never going to leave us, and he's going to give us new blood in our veins and raise us to new life. And so uh, when, it's, when, the, when the ushers or the, the communion people have come forward, feel free to come forward in your timing. And um, afterward, there will be people here to pray for you if you need prayer. And uh, yeah, I just encourage you to rest this week. darkness we were waiting without hope without light till from heaven you came right there was mercy in your eyes to fulfill the law and prophets to a virgin came the word from a throne of endless glory to a cradle in the dirt Praise the Father, praise the Son, praise the Spirit, three in one, God of glory, majesty, praise forever to the
rain.